Hello, Theology in the Raw listeners. Thanks for joining me on this extra, extra, extra special show I have on the podcast today, my best friend, Dr. Joey Dodson. If you know anything about me, you might have heard about Dr. Joey Dodson. We go way back. We met at Aberdeen University, where we were both doing PhDs in New Testament studies. And as you will see from this podcast, or I should say, as you will hear from this podcast, where I guess we're not the typical kind of PhD-ish scholarly types. Um, and you're going to hear some stories about why that is. But I just, I'm so excited for this episode. Joey is super brilliant. He's super funny. And he just makes the Bible exciting. You're going to hear all kinds of stuff in this episode about the context of the Bible, about lots of parallel stories that you know um, from the Bible and uh, about parallel stories that existed all across the ancient world that resonate with some of the biblical stories. You're going to be stretched. You're going to be challenged. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I had such a wonderful time catching up with my good friend, Joey Dodson. So please give it up for Dr. Joey Dodson. My best friend, Joey Dodson. Joey, um, yeah, thanks for being on the show. I can't believe that uh, I rarely, I, I think you've only been on the show like once. Is that correct? Once or twice? Right. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> it's okay. I don't feel like I'm very good at podcasts anyway, so it's awesome. So I, I, I've got a video of you, and I haven't seen you in several months. You look like super skinny and in shape. You been working out or drinking your green smoothies or what? Yeah, I'm doing that weird vegan thing. I is that what it being, is? Being evangelical and vegan, you know, it's just <laughs> I want to be that point zero one percent. Are you under? Are you under like your average weight, or is it just the camera? Or, I mean, you look like really good, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna put this on the podcast, are you? Oh yeah, dude. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Very <laughs> embarrassingly. Uh, no, just doing just doing the vegan diets. I've been doing it for about two years, and uh, yeah, I feel like I'm where I need to be. Wow. And but you, yeah, I mean, you exercise a lot, right? I do. I haven't in light of the move, but um, yeah. I, I do like to exercise as well. So you um, were at Wachita Baptist University for how many years? 10 years? 11. 11 years. Yeah. Longest I've ever been anywhere. Yeah, right. And yeah. then you recently, as of a few weeks ago, moved to Denver, Colorado to take a job at Denver Seminary, which... I'm really excited about dude because I love Denver Seminary. I think they're doing great work there. Tell us about wow. that whole transition. Is it going well? It is. I feel like I'm still on vacation. Yeah. Uh, so I've been here for a month, but I've been back and forth speaking at youth camps and things. Okay. And so I feel like it, it's a great vacation, but yeah. God's fingerprints are all over it. It's like it's custom fit for us. Um, I've never found an organization that balances faith and scholarship mm. um, as well as Denver Seminary. And as you know, that's my heart as well to, yeah. It's almost like a Reese's peanut butter cup, um, the Easter <laughs> version where the chocolate and peanut butter is absolutely perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. The ratio is perfect. Um, Denver Seminary is close to that. That's my it's impression. Like and, and from the people I know that 
our professors there, people I know that have gone there, they seem to be passionate about the church, about the gospel, and yet very, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and yet intellectually like very ca capable, not only capable, but also very, and I don't know what term to use here, but very fair, balanced, non-angry, um, you know, even talking to Lynn a few weeks ago on the podcast, who's your is dean, I believe, right? And, and professor, you know, she said, yeah, we have complementarians and egalitarians and we actually get along well. Like, like uh, we actually don't have one kind of sub tribe that we must all fit into. We mm -hmm. value the diversity and humble, humanizing, agree to disagree kind of conversations. Um, I mean, right. you've only been there a few weeks, but is that, have you sensed that spirit there as well? Definitely. Oh, that's awesome, man. So my first Joey Dodson story, I'm at, uh -oh. um, I'm actually in the office of Simon Gathercole, our, our uh, who ended up being both of our PhD supervisors. And um, I had been in my PhD program for about six months and uh, we were getting a fresh round of students coming in. And Simon said, yeah, we, you know, I got, we got a guy coming in doing new Testament studies. He's doing some work on Paul. Um, his name is uh, Joseph and um, he's got three or four kids. I forgot how many it was at that time, you know? So, so I had this image of like, <laughs> Joe, for some reason, like kind of tall, slender beard, thick glasses, kind of a nerdy guy, you know. And then um, a few weeks later, maybe a couple weeks later, I'm in the library and um, I'm, I'm going down towards the theology section and, and I, I see this guy coming at me. He, I don't know. This part of this may be fictitious. Part of it may be true. I don't know. But he's got baggy pants. He's got a low beanie. You know, I'm like, who is this flipping guy? You know, like, is he taking a wrong turn? And what's he doing at the Aberdeen Library? <laughs> Turned out to be Joseph, aka Joey Dodson. <laughs> And I was like, this guy looks like a failed youth pastor more than a scholar. But but shortly into our PhD programs, I'm like, that whole persona. Just didn't, I mean, you were actually a, a geek, right? I mean, like you would rather, <laughs> well, you had that whole vibe going on. You had the youth pastor thing. You've been a youth pastor. You can bottle it up with people on the courts. I mean, you, you can do, you can play that whole world. And yet you absolutely love studying Greek and Seneca. And as we'll talk about in a little bit later, you know, Hercules and Jesus parallels or whatever. I mean, <laughs> do you remember that at all? Or what was your first impression with, with us connecting in Aberdeen? I remember coming into the office and you were sitting there with Simon and he introduced us. That's my first time. Oh, I that's right. Okay. Oh, so that might have been after he because I know he meant I never hearing about your name before I saw you. So that's right. I think there was another time when you came in. I was like, yeah, that didn't that didn't really fit. But yeah, we so, had a whole California vibe going on. SoCal guy. So what's what's that vibe? Is that <laughs> the surfer boy, man? <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but it, do you remember me growing my hair out there? I, I, I do. Yeah, I didn't cut it for like a year awesome. and a half, maybe two years. I was like, man, I'm going to I'm going to get. I'm not going to cut my hair kind of like Samson until I get my PhD, but man, it got <laughs> so nasty, man. It, I, I do not, uh, I've always wanted to be a, like a cool, like long hair kind of guy. It just never worked yeah. for me. So haven't done it since you on the other hand, are have our protesting hair. Are you, you've been doing the <laughs> shaved head thing for a while, right? I have been. Yeah. And it just stopped growing back. So <laughs> hair is overrated. Um, <laughs> So you grew up in the South um, and you grew up, 
I mean, doing ministry at a really young age, right? I mean, you started doing youth ministry, well, I mean, just right out of high school or? The age 18 was my first youth pastor position. Yeah. Um, when did you start getting interested in like scholarship? Like when did doing a PhD in biblical studies come on the horizon? Was that early on as well? Or is that kind of a later thing? Uh, my sophomore year of my college, uh, Dr. Uh, Scott Duvall approached me. I'd had, a, had him for Greek. And he said, Joe, you have a lot of volume. I'm sorry, you have a lot of noise. But I think if you pursued biblical studies, that would give you some volume. Hmm. And uh, encouraged me to take Greek with him that May, doing a Greek reading of Ephesians. Hmm. And it was an intensive term. Uh, I was there with Justin Harden and Ben Blackwell. Oh, wow. uh, and we got up at 8 o'clock every morning and translated Ephesians until about 4. And that really was a turning point that... I saw the Word of God, I memorized the Word of God, I connected with it in ways I never had before, and at that point, I was like, that's what I want to do with other students, huh. and of course, being with Scott Duvall, he's great at yeah. also bridging. He, he referred to himself as a carburetor, uh, which I don't know anything about cars, So, um, but, but I think he said he likes to take what's in the academy uh, and filter it down uh, yeah. for um, educated lay people and people of the church and the pastors, and so that's kind of the vein that, that I followed then. You know, again, he, he has all these one-liners that I'm not sure he probably even remembers, but he, he told me as well that you can produce fruit the rest of your life, or you can produce fruit trees. Hmm. And uh, pursuing biblical studies helped me produce fruit trees and pastors. Yeah. So that really was the turning point, having that voice speak into my life. And you've got disciples kind of scattered all, all around, man. I mean, I meet people mainly on like social media, but at conferences and stuff who have studied under you and, and you've had you know, some level, if not a significant level of impact. I mean, is that, is that exciting for you to see all these little dots and disciples running all around or is it scary or? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to call them dots and disciples. They, they've, you know, I'm just a drop in the bucket of what they're doing, but I'm proud of them and excited. And it, it's awesome. When, when now, if I have a theological question or a Greek question, I'll um, email Dr. Madison Pierce or yeah. uh, Dr. Fresh, or if I have a, a theological question, I'll email this person or that person. Yeah. And so you know, they're, they're standing on the shoulders of a hobbit. Um, they're giants that are standing <laughs> on my shoulder. But I, lo I love uh, SBL, ETS, yeah. um, IBR, because I get to reunite with all of them, find out what they're doing in their research and how they're also mm -hmm. producing those fruits. You've turned out some sharp students, too. I mean, I've talked to some of these, I almost said students or kids or whatever, but man, they're, they're like killing it with scholarship and just thinking and writing them. They are truly the next generation of Christian leaders. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Again, I'm humbled. It's, um, it's just a drop in the bucket of what I've done in their lives. Um, they, they already were great. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't take credit for that. So you go to, you went to a couple different seminaries, Southwestern and HBU. No, not HBU. Wait. Tell yeah, that's right. So I was at Southwestern. Uh, when it was at HBU, because um, I was doing, I was a youth pastor in inner city Houston. Right. And, uh, so I did my seminary uh, with Southwestern at HBU. And so was under uh, David Capes was my mentor there. Yeah. And then went over to Aberdeen University where we started hanging out. Um, there were two, two. <laughs> <clears throat> this is theology in the raw folks. So just prepare yourself. Um, there, there are two. Theology in the raw could actually just summarize those three years in Aberdeen What's for that? us. That theology in the raw could summarize <laughs> our entire time in Aberdeen. We, when we hit it off. We were both doing Pauline studies, both doing kind of early Judaism in Paul and, 
both of us interpret Romans seven correctly, that it's not talking about a Christian. Um, and so we kind of hit it off early on. Um, do you remember that first, there was that one conference we were both involved or invited to be at. It was that small kind of invite only thing on Paul and apocalypticism, I think. And it was yeah, like, that's right. do you yes, remember that? Right. And we were like, yeah, and Simon picked us to be like Martin. chauffeur these guys around Apple and everything. Play. Yeah, Douglas Campbell. Oh man, <laughs> I couldn't even talk to him. My tide was tongued and <laughs> Lou Martin. I saw Lou, Lou Martin. Martin. I remember one time yeah. I, I was driving that little tiny car that I had. It's like a clown car and it had like Lou Martin, Doug Campbell and one other person. It was like the three main kind of like Paul and apocalyptic kind of people. And in most of my audience, funny, I don't know what that means. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, it was like, man, if I crash this car, that whole movement will go down in flames. Cause <laughs> <laughs> at the conference, if you remember, uh, Douglas Campbell at Duke was uh, introducing his apocalyptic uh, paper. That's right. And in the middle of that, uh, Friedrich Avamarie um, from, well, he was, was he at Munich at that time? Where, where was he? Yeah, I think he was at Munich, yeah. yeah he, he's passed away since. He has, yeah. But yeah. Um, a Lutheran background, and he got so frustrated at Doug Campbell's. He interrupted the paper. Nine. Do you remember this? <laughs> nine! Nine! That's a big ball! That's a big ball! Like, what? We're going to, like, throw things at one another. And oh, Doug Campbell's smile that came up, like, he was... Uh, just intentionally pushing yeah. Friedrich buttons. Well, Doug Campbell yeah, has that. That's where I met Trolls and Berg Patterson oh, right. as well, who uh, introduced me to Seneca. Is that is that where your thing on Seneca, your little your little Seneca fetish, really started kick in? Was that that conference with Trolls? It was. It was the first time I heard of Seneca. Okay. That, that I really like heard of him. Like I'm sure I read things about him before, uh, but it was the first time where because I was wanting to do Romans seven, and I shared my thesis with Lou Martin and. Lou said, yeah, that, that sounds interesting, but not very convincing. <laughs> and, and I think Simon had kind of said the same thing. And then uh, Trolls said, you know, this sounds a lot like Seneca and mm. went on for about 30 minutes um, connecting Romans 7 and Seneca. And, um, and then John Barclay was there and he was the one who told me, you know, there needs to be more done with Romans and the wisdom of Solomon. And so that little conference, which is like the second week that I was there. Oh, right. Uh, had yeah. a finger, impact on my direction and scholarship yeah wow that's right that happened yeah that, that was my first summer i came in in january you came in that that summer i didn't realize yeah you were right wow so that's when your thesis really took on so your 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 phd work um and i don't want to be we, we can i don't want to bore my audience too much but your phd work was on i know right <laughs> charlie brown's teacher um <laughs> Uh, was on uh, the wisdom of Solomon and um, the book of Romans. Can you, can you give us the um, uh, youth pastor elevator pitch version of, of what you were studying to, to somebody who might have, uh, you know, um, maybe a first year Bible college degree under their belt? Wow. I haven't read that book in so long. I've forgotten. <laughs> right. Should I wrap it then? Uh, no, uh, in Romans, Paul uses personification. So he personifies the law. It sneaks in the back door rather than just saying God gave the law. Uh, creation is not that which is going to be renewed, but she's the one who sticks out her neck, stands on her tippy toes or mm -hmm. tiptoes, how do you say it in Idaho, um, <laughs> looking for redemption, uh, righteousness by faith, um, actually quotes scripture. And so Paul has all these personifications in Romans 
that are, it's unusual. We don't see them uh, as much in his other letters. So why does Paul use personification? The student, uh, the student who wrote Wisdom of Solomon was very influential. He was probably like the C.S. Lewis of the New Testament day of the yeah. first century. So a lot of people were drawing upon him. A lot of scholarship before said that uh, even when Paul writes Romans 1 and 2, he has a Wisdom of Solomon yeah. uh, right there beside him. And he also uses uh, a lot of these personifications as well. Yeah. And so the question was, uh, and when it comes to Romans, a lot of people are like, sin and death. Are these demonic powers or are they just a rhetorical device? Mm -hmm. And But, but then they were in loggerheads. And so that was kind of the fight. Going back and forth. And so my question was not, are they personified powers or rhetorical device, but why is Paul using them in the first place? Wow, and so wow. I went back in the first century uh, looking at uh, why and when was personification used. And often it was used uh, when you had tricky um, issues dealing with the problem of evil. And so the wisdom of Solomon Paul personify uh, when you're asking this question of what about the, the redemption of Israel? Mm -hmm. They use personification. And so what, what about the role of the law? And so rather than God giving the law, it sneaks into the back door. And so uh, th th I was looking at why Paul used personification in comparison with the wisdom of Solomon. That's interesting. So yeah, wisdom of Solomon, If for those who might be familiar, it's, it's part of the so-called apocrypha. Um, so if you're Catholic, Orthodox, it's in your Bible. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating book. I didn't do it. I, I've you know, read it a few times, but haven't, haven't, haven't done the extensive work you've done with it. But it's, it is, I mean, if you just read it once and then read Romans, you're like, man, yeah. this, this sounds, <laughs> it certainly reads at least portions of it like a dialogue partner and some metaphors and phrases are almost like, man, cut out of the yeah. cloth of the New Testament. That, you know, for me, the, the, and this is why I did a PhD in the, in, early Judaism and, and Paul, and I think you did too, is just to see how important the Jewish context is for the New Testament. The New Testament is simply a document within the larger world of early first century, not only Judaism, but also just Greco-Roman kind of thinking and writing, right? Um, I mean, that, right. to me, that was the biggest takeaway, apart from my whatever I proved in my thesis, I can't remember, but like just living in that world for three years, it's, yeah. You just can't read the Bible the same after that, you know? No, there's this constant, seamless interpenetration between Judaism, Greco-Roman philosophy, and early Christianity. Yeah. And fascinating. And it's just, you go down that rabbit hole and it goes, 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 goes. Yeah. Um, where's so our, our mutual scholarly interests kind of began our relationship together. Um, but I think our relationship was crystallized when I came to you in your office and uh, said, Joey, I got a problem. <clears throat> <laughs> I've got two little kids at home who are trying to sleep and I got these junior high girls who keep doorbell ditching my apartment and they keep waking up my kids and my wife is furious. So, and this is before I became a pacifist. So, um, I, <laughs> you know, Aberdeen never gets warm. And so the water is always cold. I'm like, okay, I got a plan, Joey. I need some help. I'm, I, I'm going to, um, get a bucket of cold water. And when these girls come by and ring the doorbell, I'm going to reach over the fence and, and, and flood them with a bucket awesome. of freezing cold water. And what did it for me and for, as far as our friendship is you didn't, you didn't blink an eye. It's like, you didn't look up from your desk. You're like, yeah, sure. What time? I was like, really? You don't have any moral issues with this? And you were like, yeah, 1230. I'll be there. <laughs> I, I needed somebody to kind of send the signal from across the street. Like, okay, now, um, our plan failed because contrary to what I was expecting, they actually rang the doorbell and crossed the street. So I was there. Right. Or did you have the bucket or did I have the bucket? One of us had the bucket. 
I thought we both had buckets. Oh, do we both have buckets? Oh, that's right. No, yeah, nobody's across the street. Yeah, we both had buckets. I I saw some of them crossing the street, so I put my bucket down. Like, ah, we missed them. But then somebody ran by. I'm like, dang it, I could have really <laughs> doused this girl. So here's two fathers, husbands, PhD students <laughs> trying to throw on our lunch break, trying to throw a bucket of cold water at a bunch of junior high girls. Uh, oh, man. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> Well, let's talk about Seneca. Um, who is Seneca and, and why have you been so interested in studying Seneca? And in particular, the, the resonance that Seneca has with New Testament thought, in particular, Pauline thought. Yeah, so Seneca was a Stoic, um, which is a Roman philosophy that was very popular. Um, and he's the most prolific. He wrote the most uh, about Stoicism in the first century. And so uh, you may be familiar with his brother, um, Gallio, who was in Corinth. He was the governor of Corinth. That's his brother? Yeah, that's right. So, I was just in Corinth a few weeks ago. Yeah, and actually the you have Seneca's name in Corinth. So right across from the Bema, yeah. the judgment area, uh, there's a stone that has Seneca's name on it. Seriously? So, oh, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, so I was really geeking out when I was there uh, wow. last March because um, I had Paul right behind me and Seneca uh, right there. Because you remember... Uh, the, the Christians stood right before Gallio. Yeah, Gallio yeah, yeah. Me and my kids reenacted yeah. that whole scene, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and so really significant. Uh, Seneca was the tutor of Nero, but he knew that Nero was going to be a monster uh, even from the very beginning. So he writes this book on Providence. Uh, Nero ends up um, executing Seneca along with the rest, and Seneca quips. Of course, <laughs> he's going to execute me. He's executed everyone else. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was almost uh, like he knew he was – raising out Lord Voldemort, um, you know, the Dark Lord uh, with that. But, um, yeah, so you may be familiar with Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. Gladiator, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, maybe just from Gladiator, uh, not yeah. to bring in fight. But, um, yeah, so Marcus Aurelius uh, was, would kind of be like the pop star. He would be like the Taylor Swift to <laughs> Seneca's U2, if you will. Um Oh. Rolling, so I don't know who would be the. Well, I the, knew the Marcus parallel. Aurelius was a Stoic, but I didn't know he was that high up in the kind of like stars of Stoicism. He, well, he's, he's a star. He's more popular because of his meditations. But his meditations is almost like the pop music of okay. uh, the Stoic. Interesting. But Seneca's is much deeper. So he wrote all these essays and letters. Um, okay. Uh, to and, and letter dealing with some of the same issues that we see Paul dealing with. Okay. And uh, yeah, focusing on moral formation. And yeah, so. So the ethics of Stoicism is very similar to Paul, right? And can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, well, one thing I like about uh, Seneca is that whereas Paul would say in Ephesians, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger, he doesn't really go into depth on how do we overcome that anger. Hmm. Um, and so he mentions that in passing. And I think, of course, it's Paul's um, Holy Spirit centric um, ethic. Uh, but with Seneca, he has like three books on anger and how to overcome anger and why to overcome anger. And so there are some scholars that say that uh, Seneca was right on the threshold of Christianity and didn't even know it. Um, yeah. However, according to church tradition, Seneca ended up becoming a believer. And uh, so the early church fathers really? referred to him as our Seneca. Yeah. So there's this great book um, called Paul and Seneca and Dialogue uh, with Brill. Uh, that uh, you can get a copy of. And uh, the very first essay in that uh, has the 1,000 1, years of Paul and Seneca. Hmm. In the Middle Ages, uh, there was such a fascination with uh, Paul and Seneca 
that uh, there were these letters that were written uh, between the two, um, kind of a fanfare, fan fiction type idea um, that happened okay. um, to introduce pagans to Paul and maybe vice versa, um, Paul to pagans as well. But Interesting, huh? I've reviewed that book, but I haven't read it, but... <laughs> <laughs> you want to get a free copy? <laughs> I think I have it. Exp- and it's really expensive, so then you can sell it right back on Amazon. <laughs> Make some money. So, so yeah, give, give us some uh, touch points between New Testament ethics or specifically Pauline ethics um, and, and Seneca or Stoic ethics that would be very, very similar. Like if, they're, if, if Paul and Seneca were in a room, where would they be like just amen in each other on, on ethical points? Yeah, uh, Seneca and Paul both depict themselves as being crucified, hmm. um, which is really unusual. They're the only two people that I know uh, in the first century that have this idea of, whereas Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. Seneca has this idea of, I've been crucified with Plato and with Cato um, and the great philosophers. Really? Um, both of them use this, uh, use this depiction in response to these haters who are hating on them, uh, accusing them of hypocrisy. So Galatians for Paul, um, and it's in uh, The Good Life for Seneca. And so in both of them, with that, not only is it the same context, but uh, the cross represents sin. And so Seneca says, hey, why are you guys giving me a hard time? I'm on my cross, and I'm not perfect, um, but I'm trying to get off of the cross, that is, sin. Um, And the same way uh, you uh, crucified, uh, vilified Plato and company, that's what you're doing to me, so I'm in good company. And uh, he says, I'm trying to get off my cross while all of you are laying on your crosses, your sinful pleasures, not even trying to get off and spitting on those who are at the bottom of your cross uh, mocking you. Uh, and so, so, and then you have Paul that of course says that I died to sin on the cross and for Paul, he's been crucified with Christ, but not just with Christ, but the believers are also crucified with him. And so you have this idea of the cross being that which, uh, represents sin, uh, and for Seneca, the place that you, you want to get off of. And for Paul, the place where sin goes to die and he relishes, he glories in the cross, um, in contrast to Seneca. Now, now Seneca I would assume isn't thinking about Jesus. He's probably not even aware of that. Maybe. So, so there's yeah. this other, there's kind of a pre understanding or another category of cross sin being crucified that exists kind of outside of the crucifixion of Jesus that maybe the crucifixion of Jesus participates in, but doesn't necessarily create. If that, if that makes sense, there's, there's a pre existing yeah. kind of idea out there of crucifixion and sin. Is that, or how, yeah, how you... uh, again, we kind of thought Paul was seminal with this idea. Right. I mean, we could go back to Deuteronomy where it curses everyone who hangs upon a tree. Uh, but uh, Seneca is the very first one that we have that, that we know of, aside from Paul, that is going to connect sin and uh, crucifixion. Uh, but Seneca, he also, ha- he lists like the three most glorious deaths, uh, one being, of course, Socrates, and the other one, this guy named Regulus. Uh, Regulus was a Roman general who fought in the Punic Wars uh, back when uh, Rome was fighting against Carthage. And he was captured and he was crucified. Uh, but in his crucifixion, he overcame uh, Lady Fortune, the goddess Lady Fortune, and Ta Damonia, the demons. Um, and so he overcame through his crucifixion, not only the Carthaginians, but also these demonic um, powers who were after him. And so it was super popular. Um, everybody writes about it. Um, Cicero seems to fangirl over Regulus. Um, 
It was so popular that by the middle of the first century, so the New Testament was written in the middle of the first century, uh, this was part of the education. It was the Roman propaganda, and it was part of the public education of the kids, the story of Regulus. And so when we get to the early church fathers, they're going to point back and say, hey, you, you can't uh, say that Christ's uh, death was shameful because you use your own Regulus as an example of that. And so um, here you again have them drawing upon these Roman history stories to contextualize the gospel very early on. That, wow. Um, do you think that the New Testament retelling of the crucifixion of Christ, I guess I should say, do you think that some New Testament writers who are retelling the crucifixion of Christ were thinking of that Regulus story? Is, is that, could that be an actual backdrop? And is it almost like a, an implicit critique of that story or how would you, or is it hard to tell if there's an actual relationship? Yeah. Um, correlation causation, of <laughs> course. Um, but, but we're not quite sure, uh, the, the, the evangelists, how much they're going to draw upon that. I do think that in Colossians two fifteen, when Paul talks mm -hmm. about this triumphal procession, Oh, by the way, uh, Regulus was led in a triumphal procession by lady fortune before he overcame her. Oh, wow. uh, and he gave his life as a ransom for these. And so, uh, since it was part of the Roman propaganda, I think the Colossians has some anti-imperial or super-imperial. Do you want to explain what that is? Anti-imperial, where you had these kind of um, themes that are paraded around in the first century Roman Empire. Um, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire brought peace and prosperity and good news to all the land. And, you know, all, all these things that if you look at the New Testament, it sounds like these theological themes i'm using scare quotes here for theological themes they are theological themes but they're also very political in, in their background so they're yeah. um so so like the proclamation that jesus is lord is kurios there's an implicit kind of whisper in the wake of that that says caesar is not <laughs> um Which that is yeah um so, yeah so you're saying that this might have that kind of counter imperial yeah. That's right. Um, or maybe a supra-imperial. Uh, so I, I use a story of uh, growing up uh, on the Arkansas-Louisiana line. Uh, I was raised as a Razorback fan. And our enemy, who we thought was our enemy, was the University of Texas. So uh, we defined ourselves with a Razorback symbol or with the Longhorn symbol turned upside down. Oh, right. And I remember meeting my first uh, Texan, uh, uh, University of Texas fan, and saying, yeah, you guys are enemies. And he looked at me and said, who are you? You're not, you're not our rivals. We, we don't even know who Arkansas is. And so it could be that idea that uh, when Paul, uh, like in Colossians 2.15, where uh, Christ uh, takes off uh, the powers and authorities and he leads them in a triumphal procession, it may be that this is not anti-imperial a la anti-right, but super-imperial where uh, Christ's crucifixion, his triumphal procession is so much greater that... Uh, the Roman uh, propaganda doesn't even begin to compare hells in comparison. I've never heard that distinction. That's really helpful. The, the, the anti-imperial versus super imperial or both where we're the, we're understanding the imperial kind of concept is still helpful yeah. for giving some sort of shape, some contextualization to this otherwise kind of abstract seeming concept in the, in the new Testament. Yeah. Um, Cabin Rose World Upside Down um, is one of the best books to go for that. Yeah. Yeah, you're a big fanboy, Cabin. I, I haven't read his stuff in a long... Yeah. I, I, so since then, I've read, I think parts... I know parts of the book. I don't think I've read the whole thing. But he, is he still, like, killing it in scholarship? I don't... 
I, I'm not in the scholarly world as much yeah. as I used to be. But. Right, right, right. Uh, his latest book um, is One True Life, uh, which actually deals with Christianity and Stoicism. Really? Saying that we can actually, we cannot actually compare the two or I'd be very uh, cautious in comparing the two. Um, and so it's in a lot of uh, people like Trolls and Mer Pedersen uh, yeah. into a panic um, with, the, with his arguments. Oxford University Press came out a couple of years ago, okay. but yeah, he's such a great thinker. Yeah. And uh, I do fan boy over him. Yeah, he's, I remember reading his stuff. I, you know, I read his, um, I think I read his dissertation on the use of Kurios, uh, Lord in, in Luke's writings, um, or maybe it's just Gospel of Luke. And man, it's, He's pulling yeah. from like medieval literature for no reason. I mean, he's just like all over the, all over the place. <laughs> I heard somebody say that, um, and I can't verify this, so I'll just throw it out there. But Richard Hayes, who's one of the you know all time great New Testament scholars of the late 20th century, early 21st century, um, I heard somebody say that Richard Hayes said hands down, Cavan Rowe was the best student he's ever had, and he's had some pretty yeah. sharp students. Right. Um, yeah, I've heard the same. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I kind of missed that world, dude. I mean, you, you, st you stayed in it. You're still publishing all these high powered journal articles and I can hardly read them anymore, but, um, do you still love it when you, I mean, yeah, because you could easily go into kind of pop Christianity, be a circuit youth speaker, whatever. Like you can live in that not so academic, uh, world if you wanted to, but you, your main love is still Seneca and Paul and, Regulus and Romulus. <laughs> you still love it? I mean, you, you, uh, well, you're still going to love Jesus more than all of that. So all, all of those actually arose that lead to Jesus. So yeah. throwing and Paul, but uh, they help me understand the gospel more. And so I love as a, as a professor seeing the light come on in the eyes of my students. Uh, but maybe or, or close to that is seeing the lights go on in my own eyes. And so, uh, I'm reading Hercules, a story about Hercules the other day, where uh, there's a father who's going up onto his mountain to sacrifice his son. And all of a sudden, right before he kills his son, uh, his only son, whom he loved, um, Hercules shows up and says, stop, in the name of love, um, Seriously? put down the knife, please step away from the knife. Zeus, my father, because uh, uh, Hercules was known as the son of God, my father Zeus does not require human sacrifice. And all of a sudden he points and over in the bush, there is a golden ram solid gold, uh, or I, I don't know if it's just golden color, but they, they sacrifice the ram and uh, they take the fleece and they put it up in a tree, which becomes the fleece that Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Jason ends up getting uh, with that, the gold fleece, if you remember. And so like seeing things like that, like I've never heard before, uh, just it, it, it empowers me to continue to dig deeper and try to understand the gospel. All right, let's hit pause there. Cause I, that, okay. So who borrowed from who? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I've never heard that story, that parallel. Obviously, Genesis 22 yeah. and Abraham and Isaac. I can, send it, I can send it to you if you want to put it online, too. Yeah, your... yeah. Send me the link. I'll put it in the yeah. show notes. Um, so, what, wait, okay. So, when was that story written? My first Yeah, question. so the very first one that we have that I know of, and I'm just, this is this week that I've uh, stumbled across of it, in the Scandinavian Journal of the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is where I found it. So, uh, but Sophocles is the very first one that we have. Sophocles is around 400 BC. Okay. He's the one who wrote Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King, if you remember. Uh, and so we, we have fragments of him where he refers to this. And some tales of the stories, it's actually Hermes who shows up and says stop, which makes sense because he's the messenger of the gods, yeah. one that 
So he uh, borrowed that, from Moses then. <laughs> I think Josephus would say exactly that. Um, this, this article was saying the reverse. He was saying that this idea of the angel of the Lord that we have in the Old Testament uh, is borrowing from uh, Greek and other A&E sources. Yeah. But Josephus and Philo and you know, we can go to our time, C.S. Lewis would say that, no, these, these are uh, maybe ideas um, that are kind of the census planeur. Yeah. Um, Genesis 22 and, of course, ultimately... Uh, John 3.16 is uh, the fulfillment of what these uh, pagans had um, candlelights of Jesus Christ as the sun that eclipses that. I mean, just, okay, so on a historical level, like, so when we read, like, parallel flood accounts, Mm -hmm. some people are troubled by this. So, like, the, you know, liberals will say this is clearly where the biblical writers got it from. It's just a myth they're drawing on, and conservatives are going to say, no, the parallels, you know, they'll downplay the parallels. To me, it's like some, if there was some kind of flood, whether it's global or local, we would expect it to find its retelling in various pieces of literature. So right. to me, to yeah. find parallels of flood stories is like it verifies some level of historicity of the flood account. But yeah. with Abraham and Isaac, we're not dealing with a global flood here. We're dealing with an isolated right. incident recorded in Jewish literature, which isn't like you know, translated and passed around the world, you know, like this is really, so how, how, how do you, how do you have parallel accounts in two very different societies or bodies of literature? Did it just so happen that these two things yeah. happened or two, I mean, maybe a more liberal person might basically say, you know, these two myths both happen to occur in a different strands of literature. Um, yeah, if we go back and look at the ancient authors who made these comparisons, um, and I don't think Josephus mentions this one, but he often says that uh, the stories of like Hercules or Heracles um, and uh, Jason, that they're borrowing off of like Samson. And so they're going to, really? Josephus is going to say that, yeah, the, the Greek heroes are derivative of like what we see the Jewish heroes are. And so you have some of those that are going to come that way. Uh, with the Hercules accounts, sticking with him, uh, Hercules was known as the son of God, the savior of the world. He's the one who went down and overcame death. If you remember, he stole death's dog and brought it back up and let it in a triumphal possession um, because Juno is acting like um, uh, a demon more than a goddess. She's coming after him. And uh, at his death, and Seneca, by the way, get to, to bring them together, if this is not going into too much depth, he actually writes two plays, two tragedies about Hercules. And uh, one is the Harrow of Hell. He's the one who overcomes death. Um, in hell. And the second one is of his death where he uh, has an apotheosis. He becomes a god and goes and sits at the right hand of his father, um, Zeus. And at that, that account, it sounds like Chuck Norris because uh, when it's time for him to die, uh, death and the fates run away from him. Uh, they take him to his funeral pyre and uh, the, the flames won't take him. And so he thrusts his own body into the flames. And rather than him crying out in pain, the flames cry out in pain. So it's kind of like early church, uh, early Chuck Norris um, stories. Um, and at this point, he goes back down to hell again. He beats up um, the the guy uh, who, t- uh, Chiron, who takes you across the uh, river sticks. Yeah. He gets his own paddle and beats Chiron up with the paddle. <laughs> uh, and then, he, you know, hell can't hold him. So he goes back up. He speaks to his mom and says, hey, mom, don't be, don't be, don't be sad. Uh, my part that belongs to you, my flesh is burned away. Uh, but my part that belongs to my father will live with him forever. And so there's like worship that's led with Hercules. He's known as the avert of evil. 
Um, whereas the Jews would have Deuteronomy 6 at their doorpost. Um, a lot of Greeks, we have um, uh, the Greeks that would put uh, Hercules uh, dwells in here, so all evil um, run away. And so as early as Justin Martyr, which he's early second century, so 100, yeah. 150, we have these comparisons. And Justin Martyr is going to say that the pagans are borrowing uh, from uh, Christianity. Uh, and so, so, in one, and, and so that, that's kind of the, the earliest uh, explanations of how these parallels were, is that the pagans were borrowing from that. Celsus, the early heretic. Yeah. Am, I, am I going too deep? Do I need to pull up? No, that's fine. Uh, now, I, my audience is pretty... I think they're, I would think most of them are probably really getting off on this right now. So, so some might be okay. lost, but yeah, yeah. Well, well Celsus was a, a guy who first wrote to uh, defame Christianity that we have yeah. to say that it was, and he said, hey, why do we need your Jesus Christ? And we have Hercules. Um, and Hercules later on, uh, this dude named Justin, uh, sorry, um, Julian the Apostate, yeah. who was the emperor right after uh, Constantine legalized Christianity. Uh, Julian the yeah. Apostate wanted to make paganism great again. Uh, and so the way he does that is, uh, is he takes the story of Hercules and he borrows stories from Christ. And so now Hercules walks on water. Now Hercules is part of a divine triad with uh, Hera, Zeus, and Hercules. And so you do see that um, early on. Uh, but when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, that's more of your area. Well, because that, that makes sense. I mean, in the early church, now we're a couple hundred years after the New, the New Testament. Christianity has fl- flourished and spread. So that to, that makes perfect sense that in an effort to make paganism great again, they would sort of remap pagan stories on Christianity. But going back to the the Hercules and, and, and Abraham and Isaac story, I just don't, unless I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. So don't tweet this, but you know, unless there's kind of some common for lack of better terms, myths floating yeah. around the ancient world that, that right. the retelling of Abraham, Abraham, Abraham and Isaac is yeah. maybe drawing on. And Oh, by the way, this Hercules story is also drawing on, but there's yeah. kind of some common mythical tradition. And if some of you are troubled by the term myth or saying, wait a minute, no, Abraham actually did do I'm not, you know, I'm not denying that, but it clearly when biblical writers were retelling actual historical events, they would often use yeah. language of myth, both to critique kind of the anti-imperial thing, um, yeah. or to adopt, you know, we see this, the most blatant examples with Leviathan. We see references to mm-hmm. Leviathan and yeah. Job and, and um, Isaiah and, you know, and Psalms and Leviathan, you know, Leviathan mm-hmm. occupied a really common myth of, you know, yeah. the, the evil of the, of the sea or, you know, the underworld, whatever. Um, right. So clearly the Jewish, biblical writers, with the Jewish diaspora, uh, the Jews are all around and they're telling these stories yeah. to their Greek neighbors. Um, and so it, it, it makes sense. It's intuitive to me that some of these Greeks would hear this story. Like, man, that's a great story. Right. Let's just kind of change the names right, uh, and right. make our own story um, in light of the diaspora. And so again, it goes back to interpenetration. So we can talk about the Persian or the Babylonian influence upon the Jews uh, and their soteriology, their, their understanding of creation or salvation. Uh, but that goes the other way as well. And yeah. so it makes sense that, uh, that they would borrow these stories uh, of their own account. And so, they, they would take from the real thing and make a myth out of it. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. C.S. Lewis, he's going to argue that these type of uh, seeds are an example of God disseminating uh, notions of the gospel huh. so that when Christ came in the fullness of time, uh, they have, oh, well, we have this type of story. And now they see right. it's 
fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so he sees it as this kind of divine evangelist um, idea that puts these myths that are is, is a breadcrumb trail to um, the person of Jesus Christ. That makes sense to me. And then, yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of this when I did a lot of work on the in the Dead Sea Scrolls where you have, you know, yeah. 50, 100 years before Jesus. Uh-huh. I mean, striking, shocking parallels to stuff in the Gospels. Like there's one in... Um, Oh gosh, I haven't thought about this stuff in so long, but <laughs> the the community rule, which yeah. is referred to as 1QS, uh, 1 is the cave number that it was found in of the eight or nine caves that this literature is found in. But 1QS is kind of like a, I don't know, it's kind of like the Ephesians of the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of talked about a lot of like ecclesiology community rules, really. And, and yeah. um, at the end of that, I think it's at the end of the community rule, it talks about, you know, when the Messiah comes and sits down with his 12 you know, <laughs> elders and they break bread and drink wine together. And this is like 50 years before hundred years before the new Testament, you know, 50 years. Yeah. And it's like, so wait a minute, you know, you could in your freak out moment say, gosh, the new Testament is just all made up. They're just borrowing from stuff that's already existed or it actually did happen. It's just God took those breadcrumbs that were kind of scattered throughout history and to, to give people to kind of prepare people for the significance of actual events that happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So to me, it's not yeah. either or, you know, some people make so right. much about the parallels to me. It's like, it just shows that the biblical story and the gospel wasn't written in a vacuum. It wasn't, it was in real space, real time. And That's people right. had categories in their minds and hearts already prepared by God in history for these events. I mean, exactly. to me, it's just, it's exciting and, and, and mm-hmm. gives life and earthiness to the new Testament, you know? Yeah. But so that answers your question. On why I enjoy <laughs> All right. What about, uh, I just heard you make a comment recently on a podcast about Jesus as a cynic. And, um, you made a distinction between, you know, lowercase C cynic and uppercase C cynic. And I, I can't remember. I thought you might've said he was both. Um, maybe not. I don't know, no. but, or no, he was more of a, just a capital C cynic. And yeah, if so, yeah. well, a lot of people would have considered him a capital C cynic in the Greco-Roman world. So, so, so we, help us understand again for the junior higher, uh, sure. what is a capital C cynic and why do you think Jesus uh, fit that kind of mold? Yeah. So just like maybe in our church, we have different denominations today uh, that stem back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, you had, uh, uh, all of these these denominations, if you will, that kind of go back to Socrates and Plato. So uh, N.T. Wright has made, has made it popular by saying uh, Homer would be the Old Testament of the Greeks hmm. and Plato would be the New Testament of the Greeks. So you have all these different denominations, one of which is the uh, Stoics that I was talking about with Seneca. Uh, the Epicureans, your group may be familiar with. Um, and another popular one was the Cynics. And the Cynics actually comes from the Greek word dogs. Um, and their idea was to get back to nature. Um, and so they were minimalists. Um, they uh, were, they wanted to live a simple life. Um, we're all just animals, uh, basically. And so they would defecate in public. Um, they would urinate. They would do other things in public that uh, we would not do. Um, inappropriate uh, to say, just to say, hey, we're, we're all animals. But part of this is that uh, they would be homeless. Um, and uh, so when Jesus would say the Birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to um, lay his head. That, that would come across as being very cynic. Um, so uh, the idea, why would have two cloaks? Um, if you, you don't need two cloaks. You don't need two pairs of sandals. Give away one. Uh, and so what, even what we see with John the Baptist, uh, this idea of uh, 
you don't you only need one bag just take what you need uh, resonates uh, with the cynics um going back uh, to what nature is yeah. um, again jesus wasn't like the cynics in the sense of uh, pushing back and trying to scandalize in the sense of uh, urinating in public and all those yeah. other things uh, but when he makes a comment when he doesn't wash his hands before he eats or his disciples yeah. uh, this would be something to uh, a, a popular first century audience would, would sound very cynical because it's not what goes into your mouth. You don't need to wash your hands. We're just animals. It's what comes out of the, the heart that makes you impure. And so there are a lot of uh, resonances with the cynics um, and uh, Jesus in the Gospels, particularly with the earthly Jesus of Mark's Gospel. Yeah. Sounds like Shane Claiborne. <laughs> well, not, not that he's defecating in public, but or I don't, I don't know. I haven't followed him around, but... Um, that's it. So what about, so I mean, Jesus is clearly in a Jewish Palestinian context, cynics are a Greco Roman thing. Would there be any intentional kind of playing on those themes or can we connect those dots given that he's not yeah. like Jesus is running around Asia minor doing this stuff? I mean, right, right. Well, if, uh, it's correct that Mark is writing to a, a Roman, uh, context, oh, uh, the Roman audience is going to see that um, connection. If you remember Mark, um, he has a lot of, uh, Latin phrases that he has to explain. And so, yeah. uh, that the, the first audiences of the Gospels weren't uh, particularly Jewish. They were a mix of Jewish Gentiles. And so uh, whether Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wanted to depict, depict Jesus as a cynic or a Stoic or whatever, yeah. um, up for the debate, but many in the audience would make those connections. And that podcast is uh, trying to move from cynicism to uh, solutions, I think, is their, their tagline. <laughs> it's like catacombs, uh, the Catacomb Podcast. What's up, Jay? Uh, and so I was just kind of pushing back to say there is a, a place for cynicism yeah. in the sense of uh, being minimalistic, simple. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Yeah. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and all those other things. Um, and so a lot of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount would resonate with some of the cynic um, as, uh, ethics. What about, uh, this is going to shift us gears, I guess, but it's a good segue. What about the lowercase c cynicism? Um, yeah. And I'll just confess, I do battle with that brand of cynicism when it comes to uh, for specifically the American evangelical church. Um, and I try hard, really hard to not let that get the best of me or whatever, but man, sometimes the church can give you a lot of material to work with. Um, and I know I, I, here's where I want to, here's where I'm going with this. For some reason, I don't know when you, when you both go outside of America and experience a brand of Christianity, that's not American. And also when you go through a lot of just intellectual study, scholarly study, I don't know, it's hard not to be cynical sometimes. Have you experienced that in your life? Um, Of course. I mean, as scholars, we're, we're training ourselves to be skeptics, which is another uh, version, uh, another denomination in the first century um, and cynics. That's kind of what we're trained to do. We question everything. Uh, we think everyone, everything, uh, everyone has uh, their own baggage that they bring uh, to the text, for example. And so uh, there, I, I, there is some value in asking questions. But if those questions do, does not end in hope, um, of course, you talk about the church. Um, uh, Philip Yancey has the, the book, uh, Church, Why Bother? Yeah. You know, so there's many of us that get to that um, experience where we're like, why? Um, I just want to punt when it comes to church. But uh, that cynicism has to lead to hope because we realize that uh, Ephesians 5, 21 and following that Christ is uh, washing the church. And mm-hmm. the reason the church is messed up is because we're messed up as well. And so um, I, I don't think there's, I don't think it's wrong to start with some cynic ideas with respect to questioning 
uh, seeing problems, but we need to make sure we take the planks out of our own eyes yeah, and also look at, um, keep our mind fixed on Christ rather than the, yeah. the problems of people. Denominationally, yeah, I mean, are, you, right? are you still, Southern, are you officially Southern Baptist? I know that was your background and, and somewhat of your foreground, but is that? I tell people I'm Southern Baptist, like the Olive Garden's Italian. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm really bad Southern Baptist. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's I, I've, I've uh, did. I went to Washington Baptist University as an undergrad, which is uh, in cooperation with Southern Baptist. I went to Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and mm. I've served uh, under the Church Southern Baptist up until now, working with Denver Seminary. And so uh, my roots are in missionary Baptist and Southern Baptist world. And you were, you were a pastor at a Southern Baptist church in Wachita, right? Yeah, that's right. In Arkadelphia, Arkansas, Arkansas. First Baptist. Um, but it, it's kind of like the Olive Garden of, yeah. of Southern Baptist as well. So it's, it's kind of you know. was, if I can, it's just, I, I don't know Southern Baptist history at all, but I mean, it sounds like, I mean, right, like right now you have, and I don't mean this in a positive or negative way, just a factual way. You have kind of the wake created by Al Mohler coming into Southern seminary, and uh, which is bled into Gospel Coalition. And, and so you have a, a brand of Southern Baptist Church right now, the, the dominant brand, I would say, that is what people think of when they think Southern Baptist. But pre-Al Mohler coming to Southern Seminary, there was, I mean, one, I, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the reasons why they brought him in was because of the so-called liberalism that was widespread right. in Southern Seminary. And, um, so you still have kind of a... Um, the pre-Al Mohler Southern Seminary brand of Southern Baptist Church that would be more uh, centrist, if not more liberal in the evangelical kind of scheme of things. Um, and yeah. your church would fit more in that kind of centrist middle left. Yeah, it was weird at our church. We had uh, a great spectrum. And so we would have people on the far right and people on the far left. Oh, okay. You remember, uh, yeah, you remember some of my friend, two best friends there. That one was a hardcore Republican. Ben Shapiro is not, uh, is left, is a liberal to him. The other one on the opposite side of that spectrum, but we all came together and focused on the gospel and mission and um, got along miraculously. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. There, there wasn't a, a single area. I mean, it probably leaned a bit to the left just because we had so many university professors yeah. from two universities, but it was a beautiful mix of people that uh, realized that those are not the issues that we're going to focus on. Yeah. Going to focus on. Have you guys found a church yet in Denver? Probably not, right? Man, it's crazy. So uh, the very first church we've gone to, we've fallen in love with. Uh, we, the first family that we met, uh, we were walking our dog, uh, and they asked us where we're from. And we're like, well, we're from Arkansas. And they said, where in Arkansas? And we said, well, Arkadelphia. And she's like, no way. I went to Washington Baptist University. Yeah. And I was like, well, it's out there. And then she said, uh, well, who, what's your name? And I said, I told her my name. And then she's like, well, Aubrey Smith was my best friend. And Aubrey was one of my all-star students uh, there. And uh, so she's like, you should come to our church. And so we go to this church. It's, she says it's charismatic Anglican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the same look is what I made. Yeah. Like, charismatic Anglican. Uh, what is this? Uh, and we went, um, and we've only been here for three Sundays. Okay. Wow, we really enjoyed it. I, I'm not a crier, as you know. Yeah. Um, emotions have to sneak up on me. I mean, tackle me, but the spirit uh, at this place is just so palpable that there's times where I, I can't, I have to stop singing because I just feel, wow. um, so I'm not sure that's where God's going to have us, um, yeah. but uh, that's where we're really enjoying it. My son's coming to Utah uh, next week on a mission trip with them, working with refugees, wow. uh, and he hasn't even met the youth pastor yet, so, wow. but anyway, we're enjoying that so far. Are you free to share the name of it, or would you rather not? It's uh, Wellspring. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Wellspring Inglewood. We were at, um, 
uh, a church called Denver United, more down, kind of downtown area. That's an okay. awesome yeah. church, fairly multicultural, right. very community engaged. Mm-hmm. Theologically, I think, and it with healthy diversity and just really, yeah. really great people there. Really enjoyed it. But right, um, I, I, I've heard a lot of compliments about a lot of churches, yeah. um, which is refreshing because usually you go to a place and you're getting uh, the, the insults about the churches, <laughs> or the baggage about them. But um, yeah, it seems like God's doing a great thing among the churches well, around here. Well, Denver seems like a very kind of post-Christian area so that yeah. usually places like that like portland or other places yeah the churches tend to be much more united because there's such a strong right. stronghold that they're you know uh, yeah. against so um wow man so what do you uh what are you working on right now scholarship wise writing wise what are you thinking through sure yeah besides, so Her- besides the-, the hercules thing yeah <laughs> yeah regulus and hercules uh, are two journal articles that i have out right now and then um I'm spending a lot of time in Colossians. I'm writing a Colossians through Philemon commentary series. Really? Uh, yeah. So with uh, Brandon Smith and Michael Bird are the editors for it, the Christian Standard. Uh, Tom Schreiner's book is uh, in that series is coming out uh, soon. And cool. I'm doing the Colossians through Philemon. From what I heard, it's almost like they're making the the NAC, uh, the New American Commentary, kind of redoing that. Okay. Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time in Colossians trying to, have something new to say. As you know, most commentaries are kind of rearranging of the furniture, but I'm trying to dis- discover some new furniture, hence the Hercules and the Regulus um, issues. Uh, yeah. uh, and then secondly, I'm writing a book on Romans 7, so okay. uh, with Lexum, yeah, and it's one of those ideas where they're taking what's really popular and common in scholarship and bringing it down uh, to the church, and so I'm excited about that. And then Likely my magnum opus is I'm writing a Romans commentary for Brill, um, Brill exegetical, um, under Stanley Porter. No way. Wait, that's the one they, they, that's been, that commentary series has been in the works for over a dozen years, I think. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, and uh, mine's, mine's a 10 to 12 year project um, yeah. for that. And so I've written one journal article on that, um, arguing about the intercession of the spirit. Where does Paul get that? Is that seminal when he talks about the spirit of God praying for us? Cause we have a lot of people that pray for us in scripture, a lot of mediators, but God is never one who mediates. And so is this something that Paul just pulls out of the apocalyptic gospel when he, when Jesus uh, knocks him on his uh, donkey um, on Damascus um, or is for Paul drawing for something. And so I have a, a, an essay coming out in the book volume that's uh, arguing that no, this is Paul uh, drawing from the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon has a similar idea. Except in the wisdom of Solomon, the spirit of God takes our evil thoughts up to God for condemnation really uh, yeah so your your bad thoughts that you have the spirit of god takes it and says look at this but uh with paul he has the same idea but now there's now no condemnation for those of us in christ jesus and so the spirit of god can take a break from accusing us and now bring intercession on our behalf and so hmm. uh, that, that's only my really first step into the romans commentary but i'm teaching romans here that's my major thing to teach at denver seminary and so i'm hoping to be able to double dip and start working on it so if you want to attend, uh, if you want to sit under Dr. Joseph Dodson and uh, learn about Just Joey. Hercules and uh, <laughs> Regulus and uh-huh. Seneca and Romans, uh, Jesus and Paul. And Jesus and Paul in the gospel and throwing <laughs> ice cold water on junior high girls, then please consider uh, Denver Seminary. <laughs> uh, I'm studying. And we have an full online program as well. Um, and a THM. Oh, and right on. I'm the least of the apostles here. Lynn Coick, uh, Craig Bomberg, Rick Hess, um, and the list goes on and on and on. Is how um, Hess is still there. How, how about, um, yeah. 
Oh, who was that guy that wrote that great immigration book? Um, he grew up in uh, Central America, I think. Andy Carroll? Yeah, Andy yeah. Carroll? Is, yeah, he's not here anymore, oh, he's not. sadly. Uh, I think he's at Wheaton now. Oh, okay. He's gone. But yeah, he's a fantastic guy. But yeah, so I'm the least of the least of the least uh, yeah. of the apostles here. So wow. I just kind of snuck in. And you guys have good um, kind of hybrid programs too, where you can do like modules lot. Or they, I think they don't they ship That's out right. professors for like a couple of days all day, and That's then they right. do the rest yeah, online. So we have we have a side in Amarillo, um, which right. every time I hear, I want to bust into a George Strait song. <laughs> Amarillo uh, and, by morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a site in DC um, as well. And so we're doing a lot of great things. Um, uh, of course, I'm focusing more on biblical studies, New Testament studies, but. Uh, they boast that our counseling program is the best in the world. If you're looking at doing Christian counseling, Christian psychology. Okay. You don't have uh, Larry Crabb out there, do you? Cause I know he's in Colorado. No. You know. Yeah. I, I don't think, know where he is. But I think he's in Denver. He was, I don't know. But anyway, well, dude, thanks so much for being on Theology yeah. and Raw. Uh, where can people check out your stuff? Do you, do you even have a website? I should know this, but do you have a website or just social media? Stuff? No, I think if you go to Denver Seminary, uh, sooner or later, it'll have my CV okay. on it with my publications. Um, right now, you can go to uh, uh, obu.edu, um, Washtenaw Baptist University. It starts with a no, despite it. Um, and my CV with all of my publications um, okay. is there. Um, but I don't have a proper website well, you're active you on know, twitter I'm too just, right I, i'm yeah. preston i'm preston sprinkle's best friend that's how i introduced myself <laughs> yeah. So, yeah i'm like oh you're preston's friend which makes me feel like uh, peter and andrew uh, in the gospel you know andrew every time andrew's introduced is like oh yeah that's philip i mean that's uh, peter's brother peter's brother you know yeah oh so, stop uh no, I, I consider it an honor to be called your best friend <laughs> Well, you're on. A, you're pretty active on. Are you still active on Twitter much? I mean, I see yeah, you. On, yeah, yeah. Twitter, yeah, I haven't been because we've been transitioning. Right. Been so crazy, but um, it's uh, J R R D O D S O N. Man, where'd uh, you get that other R? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I'm, it's a legacy. I'm living for Tolkien, so I'm a big Tolkien fan, as you remember. Yeah. Uh, and I have, I'm a junior, so you can take the junior and bring it in with the extra R. But um, yeah, J R R Dotson, and then I'm on Instagram probably more than I am on Twitter because okay. I'm posting all of my hikes and trail runs. Yeah, you got so, into the mountains quite a bit over the last few years, right? I, I've loved the mountains. You know, when we went through the Sawtooth, uh, yeah. I think I had some incipient um, a fetish for the mountains, but yeah. that just made it uh, run rampage. Um, yeah. Love hiking. So I can't wait to meeting up with you and hiking. I know, man. Yeah, we got to plan something out. All right, dude, I got to run, dude. Thanks so much for being on the show, bro. Yeah, love you, man. Right, Thanks, guys. Care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the show. If you benefited from it, and if you are benefiting from your regularly your regular <laughs> listening to Theology in a Raw, please consider supporting the show. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in a Raw, and you can support the show. This is a listener-supported podcast. So if you have been blessed by it, challenged by it. If you enjoyed this show and other shows, then please consider supporting by going to patreon.com forward slash theology and raw. Also, if you're like, dude, I'm broke, I'm bankrupt, or dude, I've given all my money away to the poor, then that's awesome. Well, it's not awesome that you're bankrupt, but it's awesome that you're giving away all your money to the poor. There are other ways you can help support the show, like 
uh, dropping a review. I don't know how it all works, but apparently reviewing the show really helps out. So if you don't have any money, or even if you do have money, if you've got tons of money or no money, either way, why don't you consider going and uh, dropping in a review of the show? Um, it must be a positive review. Not just kidding. You can drop any review. I don't know. If you hate the show, then go write a negative review. It's just part of living in a free democratic society. It's the way it goes. So um, please take the time, take 30 seconds, take a minute and go drop a quick review of the show um, in the, I don't even know where you do it. I'm sure you know more than I do. I don't know. Where do you review this podcast? Probably in iTunes somewhere or maybe in, in, um, uh, I don't know, some other podcast platform. I don't know what I'm talking about. You probably do. Go read, uh, go drop a review somewhere. I'm going to stop before I just keep, yeah, um, stepping on my own tongue. So thanks for listening to the show. We'll see you next time on Theology in the Raw.